Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 6. Mark 6, starting in 53. Now this passage is the end of Mark 6, before it gets into Mark 7. And this is a summary passage, if you will. There are no names, there are no specific miracles that are listed to before this and if you read the rest of Mark 6 prior to this then you realize that starting two days before Jesus fed 5,000 which was more than 5,000 which was his biggest miracle that he did he saw the disciples from his mountaintops in the midst of a storm He walked on water through the storm to get to the boat. He caused Peter to walk on water. He got into the boat, and as soon as he got into the boat, the storm stopped. The boat immediately found itself on the shore, so it had traversed the three to four miles to the shore instantly. And the response of the disciples in the boat at that time was to worship Jesus Christ. They now realized they were in the presence of of God incarnate, that Jesus was not just a good teacher. He was, in fact, divine, holy, God incarnate. And the boat landed at Gennesaret. Now, some people have looked through Mark 6, and when they first got into the boat after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus said they were going to go to Capernaum. But they landed in Gennesaret. And you go, well, how can this be? Some people who are always looking for errors in the Bible will say, there you go, the Bible's full of errors, but you've got to understand how the land is put together. If somebody is in Los Angeles and they say, I'm going to Alameda, well, initially you may not know whether they mean the little island in the bay or they mean the county, because Alameda is also a county, and Gennesaret is like a county. Gennesaret is a plain, it is a large area that the Romans had put a a person in charge of that area and in Gennesaret there were many towns and many cities, Capernaum being one of them. And so Jesus had landed in the unincorporated part of Gennesaret, uh, very similar to San Lorenzo. We are stuck between San Leandro and Hayward. And we are part of the county. And so in 54, well it says in 53, when they had crossed over they came to land at Gennesaret and moored on the shore. So the disciples looked up and they were instantly at Gennesaret and they threw the ropes out and they tied the boat down and brought it up on the sand a little bit. And then in 54, when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And you say, well, why did they recognize him? Well, if you go previously to this, several months probably before this, Jesus came to Gennesaret and he healed two 
demon-possessed men who were amongst the tombs. If you remember the story of there were these two men who were naked, they couldn't be clothed, they had broken chains on their wrists, they couldn't be chained, and they were living amongst the tombs on the hillside. And when Jesus goes to heal them, the demons that are inside them, which said that they were many, their name was Legion, they were many, said, put us into the pigs. There were 2,000 pigs on the hillside. So Jesus let them go into the pigs, and the pigs ran down the hill and drowned in the lake. And the people were afraid. The people were greatly afraid of this power that they had seen. And so they, they demanded, they entreated Jesus to leave them to not be amongst them because such power amongst them was scary and he left. And then he did stuff with the uh, centurion's daughter and he did stuff with the lady with the issue of blood and various miracles over in the Galilee in the Nazareth sort of area. And now he is going back to Gennesaret and they've had a chance to ponder what he has done and they have had a chance to understand perhaps how beneficial Jesus would be. And so they recognized him from the miracles that they had done with the pigs. And they, had, and they welcomed him at that point. It says, and when he got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran around about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds wherever he was. And where, wherever he came, and so this is where Jesus is going, it says in villages, in cities, or in countryside. And if you recall the Roman definition of the difference between a village and a city a city has a wall around it. A village does not. And so it's a number of population. Villages are smaller towns. Cities are larger towns that perhaps have a Roman garrison because they have a wall for protection. And also in the countryside. And so if you look at ancient maps, it doesn't give populations, but your Gennesaret is fairly large, and you have cities like Capernaum, a very large fishing village. You have a city, and you have other villages that are around. And Jesus was moving up and down amongst Gennesaret into the villages, into the cities. And if he was in a village or a city, he probably went to a synagogue. That was the path that he usually went. Paul followed that example when he would preach about Jesus. He wouldn't do it on the street corner. He'd go to the synagogue where at least you have a chance of finding people who believed in God. And so he would probably go to the synagogue on Saturday in the villages and the cities. But it also says the countryside. He would also go out into the farmland and the place where there were not so many buildings and people would follow him. People would, it said, ran about. So they would go with great eagerness to find Jesus. They had probably talked about his miracles. They had probably heard things that he had done in other cities as gossip and stuff would travel through a small town. 
and they would understand that, hey, I got an ant, and I got an ant that's paralyzed, maybe Jesus can do something about it. And so they would follow him, and it says that they would, uh, they would bring sick, sick people on their beds, wherever they heard that he was. These are desperate people. They didn't bring people with, with a limp, or they didn't bring people necessarily with a cold. Okay, they brought people who could not move on their own. Now, my guess is from how people would respond, they brought everybody. Anybody that had a little bit of discomfort, anybody that had pain, but family members, friends, were willing to carry a stretcher with six sick people on it, you know, a couple miles here and a couple miles there, chasing after Jesus in order to get their friend healed. So people were putting the work into it. People were believing that Jesus had something, and they were willing to put, uh, as it were, feet to their belief. That is what we call faith. People will read this, and, and some have questioned whether this is saving faith, or whether this is Faith of the thrill of the chase. Jesus is just walking around here and there, and they're chasing after him, and they believe that Jesus can do something, and it may be kind of exciting for them to try to get to Jesus as the crowds get bigger and bigger. And then it says in 56, uh, and wherever he came in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. And so in the center of each town, you had a market where farmers and butchers would bring their various wares. People who made clothes would bring them. It was like a, like a flea market or a farmer's market in the center of town. They didn't necessarily have back then storefronts where you would put your stuff. They had a regular place that had stalls and had a a, you know, a brick, a solid floor, and people would come and set up a table and sell their stuff. In the, in the marketplace, you had to be a really established city like Rome, you know, a huge city before you would have shopping centers, as it were, where people would have established places to put their wares and their stuff. In villages, in, city, in these small places, it was just a cleared out area in the middle of town where people could come and sell a couple shirts or some lamb or some rutabaga or some, you know, whatever vegetables they had. And because it was a cleared space, because it was a large space, people would come and just line up their sick people. They would line up the people who couldn't walk, who couldn't get out of their bed, just line them up, hoping that Jesus would come and heal them. And apparently he did. There's no record anywhere in the gospel or the Bible of Jesus saying, that's too hard, or that's too difficult, or I really don't know what's wrong with this person, so I can't heal them. He healed everybody who came. And if you look at this passage... We don't really know. People try to put together from the festivals that are before this passage and after this passage 
how long he did this. It is at least a couple weeks. Some people speculate that it was several months, four to five months, that Jesus just set up shop, as it were, and healed a thousand people today or whatever. Everybody that came, Jesus was healing. And you say, well, is that all he's doing? No, that's not all he's doing. In the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John also talks about this, but also says during this time, Jesus does the I am the bread of life sermon, where he talks about uh, being the, the bread of life, the spiritual food that all of us need to survive and live forever. And so he wasn't just healing people, he was healing and teaching and healing and teaching and healing and teaching so that a number of people, and we do not know how many, would come to saving faith. They would put together the two parts of the miracles and the teaching and say, oh yeah, 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 you are somebody. You are the Son of God. I will believe in you. And then this passage ends with, and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. As many as touched it were made well. And you think, that's strange. Where did they get that idea? Well, they got that idea from the other side of the lake with the lady with the issue of blood. The lady with the issue of blood thought to herself, if I only touch his, the hem of his garment, I will be healed. She touched it and she was healed. Now, do you think she went and became a hermit? After that, no, she told everybody she knew. She showed up at the synagogue. She showed up at the marketplace and people are saying, wow, you look so much better. And she said, yeah, you want to know why? And she would talk about all she did was touch the hem of his garment. And so that rumor, that teaching, that story made it all the way around the lake so that people over in Capernaum and Gennesaret are thinking, wait a minute, I heard a story that all this lady had to do was touch the hem of his garment. And if she touched the hem of his garment, she would be healed. Maybe that will work for me. And so you have stories about Jesus, and most of them seem to be correct. Now, they implored Jesus that this would work. They didn't come and demand of Jesus that things would happen this way, but they, they were begging Jesus that they would get healed, and they were. As far as we know from this passage, if you go into seven, then Jesus is in conflict with the Pharisees, so he's gone back to a major city that had Pharisees, and he's done with this healing session but you have to believe that if he did this for weeks, if he did this for even a few months, it was probably hundreds, maybe thousands of people that there was, my guess would be, nobody left sick in the Gennesaret area. That everybody was all well and healed and walking and talking and demons were cast out and all the stuff that Jesus did and in doing that, that would become a, a hotbed, a center of evangelism about Jesus Christ because everybody had a story. Everybody 
knew somebody who had been healed. Everybody knew somebody who had had demons cast out. And Jesus became famous, as it were, in that area. And then he goes, and of course, the Pharisees are all about, well, you didn't do it right, you know, you didn't pay your taxes before you healed people, or whatever their complaint was in this particular part. And so they try to put a kibosh on what he's doing, but Jesus doesn't care. Jesus is here, and you say, well, why did he do all the healing? Well, he did all the healing because he wanted to give weight. He wanted to give value. He wanted to give uh, understanding to his teaching. Jesus can say all sorts of things about him being the bread of life or living water or the light of the world or all the things he called himself. And if he just said that and then went to the next town, people would go, yeah, yeah, whatever, that's fine, that's good. But if he did it and then he healed everybody in the town, you got to go, well, wait a minute. There's weight to what he's saying. He has, he has backed it up with miracles. And of course, the Pharisees come and say, give us a sign. Well, go to Gennesaret and talk to those thousands of people and find out there's a sign of Jesus healing. Jesus has healed people. Jesus has cast out demons. And so we can look at that and we can say, that's all well and good, but I've got an ache or I've got a pain and Jesus isn't here anymore. And the question is, what is the situation today? How do we take this passage of Jesus healing all comers and put it in the church today? And one, one way to look at it, and this is, it's not a direct word-for-word -word teaching in Scripture, but most of the New Testament is what Teresa of Avila said. She lived from 1515 to 1582. And she said, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassionate. On, in, on, yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blessed all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, yours body. Christ has no body now on earth, but yours. And you say, huh, how did she get that? Okay, how did she understand this and come up with this statement or this poem or whatever you call it, this teaching? If you remember, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus hung out with his disciples for 40 days. We have very limited knowledge of what he did during those 40 days. Then he gathered at the Mount of Olives, gathered 120 of his best friends, and ascended into heaven, saying, wait. And so they all went to the upper room, and they waited, 120 of them, and they waited, and they waited, and 10 days later the Holy Spirit came. And the story in the book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit starting in the upper room and then going across the Near East all the way to Spain is where as far as Paul got with the teaching of the Holy Spirit. 
such that by the end of Acts, everybody who is saved, everybody who believes in Jesus Christ, who has saving faith, they immediately get the Holy Spirit. Now, years later, today, I witness to somebody and they accept Jesus Christ. Our understanding is, and we see this, is that they immediately gain the Holy Spirit. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. We say the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If God the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, then, as the New Testament says, you have the fullness of God in you. Jesus made it clear to his disciples that could not happen if he was still here. Okay? He had to go, and you can ask him how that works. I don't know. He had to go before the Holy Spirit could come. Okay? He had to go for God to send the Holy Spirit. Now, if Jesus is leaving physically, okay, he's still God incarnate. He's still all powerful, omnipresent, omniscient, okay? But he's not here. You can't shake his hand, okay? He's not here. The Holy Spirit is. The God, the Spirit of the Trinity is within you. So what does that mean? It does not mean that you are omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. The Holy Spirit does not make you God. The Holy Spirit empowers you to be a saved person. And you say, what? You can go out into the world and you can see people and you can watch them. And some people, over a period of time, you would say, they got problems. I wouldn't judge somebody as saved or unsaved, but there's clear, obvious sin in some people's lives. And so those people, you would say, would need Christ. If you follow a saved person around, you would still see them sinning. That is the human nature. That is what we do. But the, the average view of a person who is saved is Christ-centered, is living for Christ, has a different perspective. The world lives for themselves. We are in a very strong self-oriented movement in the world today. I am the most important person in existence, and you must do what I say and bow down to me. That is what is out there in the world. That is the teaching that is out there in the world. Christians say, no, 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 it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my Lord. I live for him. And there's verse after verse after verse after verse after verse in the New Testament that talks about we living for Christ, not for ourselves. And so you say, so what do we do with that? Well, Jesus was one person who walked the earth, and it may have taken months to heal all these people, but he walked wherever he went, okay? Now he's gone, and you have a number of people. Now, people have estimated, and you can't count them, but people have estimated there's 2.2 billion Christians in the world. You have 2.2 billion people, and we'll pretend that that number is, is real, okay? We can debate, yeah, but the Mormons say that they're in that group. Okay, fine, whatever. We'll say that there are 2.2 billion people who have the Holy Spirit. 
That is Jesus Christ, his hands, his feet, his eyes spread throughout the world. And there are two ways that this functions. There's first, it's individually. Each of us are commanded to do righteous things, to do good works, to do things for Christ, to live for Christ in our daily lives. We need to make choices that are Christ-centered individually. Okay? An example of this is I was walking through Walmart to get something. I think it was cat food. And this man and this woman were about four feet apart, and they seemed to be arguing. They were talking loudly, okay? I am not saying eavesdrop, okay? But if God can lead you to do things that looks like, look like you're eavesdropping, okay? God can lead you to do things which normally you wouldn't do. Okay, so as I was walking by, I have no idea what they're talking about. It was loud, but I don't know. I walked right behind the guy and he said, all I want, loudly, all I want is for one person to stand up and say, God answers prayer. And I thought, huh, I can do that. So I said, excuse me, God answers prayer. And he started busting up laughing. He's laughing and laughing. And he said, see, you asked for God to do something, and there's an answer to prayer right there, pointing at me still talking loudly. I have no clue what his journey is, or if he goes to church, or what church he goes to, or the lady, or what they were talking about. But God made it clear to me at that moment, I just needed to say that. Okay? It wasn't a full gospel presentation. He wanted somebody to say, God answers prayer. So I said, and I believe, God answers prayer. And that moved him in a direction that God wanted him to go. Okay, That's just an example of doing, I would call that an extraordinary thing. Okay, It isn't something that people would normally do. You wouldn't call it miraculous, but there it is. But there's only so much that I can do, okay? So we have churches. We have corporate Christian behavior. And that allows us to do more. If you look through the New Testament, you have a variety of gifts. Paul calls uh, the church the body with a variety of tasks and a variety of abilities. We are, as a church able to do more. One thing that I can't do is this church supports missionaries in New Zealand. Okay, we pay most of their living expenses and put money into retirement for them. Okay, the Demetrius family. There is a letter in your bulletin today from the Demetrius family and you can read about what we are doing with our money. Now, this church, with its size and with its income, we cannot even as a church, I cannot individually, we cannot as a church fully support the Demetrius family in New Zealand. And so his home church, which I think is in San Pablo, has formed an association 
of many churches. I do not know how many. Many churches, and we all pay into an account that the Demetrius family uses. We pay a little. This other church pays a little. This other church pays a little. Multiple churches all paying a little comes up with enough for them to live on in New Zealand. That is the body of Christ. It isn't just one person doing stuff. It's multiple churches all doing righteous things with regard to the Demetrius family. And it is the body of Christ. Corporately, we are his hands, we are his feet, we are his eyes, we are his pocketbook. Okay, We do what God has commanded us to do individually, as a church, and as an association of churches. And if you put that all together into the 2.2 billion Christian with the churches all over the world, we are doing some amazing things. We are replacing what Christ did as large groups of people. That is what we do. That is what the body of Christ is. That is what we are to do. When Christ left, he gave us certain ideas of what to do. It's called the Great Commission. Shall go into all the world and teach them what he has said and baptize them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And lo, he said, I am with you always through the Holy Spirit till the end of the age. We are the replacement, if you will. We cannot replace God, but we are the physical do-the-work replacement for Jesus Christ on this earth. Individually, we can do small things like attest to God answering prayer, we can do big things like pay for missionaries in New Zealand, and it is all part of the body of Christ. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I just praise your name that you are still working, that you are still calling people to do things, that you are still moving amongst the world and saving people and feeding people and clothing people, and Lord, we just praise you for that. We praise you that we are, as a church, greater than the sum of our parts. And then in doing that, we can glorify you in all we do. I pray that individually we will be those who glorify you. And corporately, this church may be known as a church that glorifies you. We ask all this in the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.